When I talked about grief last week, I got enough feedback and responses and questions that I realized that I would need to return to this crucial topic today. So for today, I'm going to draw on some of the beautiful work of Reverend Benjamin Perry that he does in his exquisite book, Cry Baby. Inspired by him, let's draw on the wisdom of our neighbors, the Mahayana Buddhists. I want to tell you about the Bodhisattva Avalokishvana, Avalokishvara, excuse me, who is the Bodhisattva of compassion, or Tara. So if you know anybody named Tara, her name means compassion. And one day in meditation, Avalokishvara was overcome with sadness, particularly in thinking about the suffering of the world. So she began to cry. And as she cried, something incredible happened. Her tears dropped. And they formed these personages, these Tara of compassion, these humans. And one embodied comfort and the other embodied protection. And I want you to hear this teaching. Her tears turned into the compassion of comfort and the compassion of protection. And then Avalokiteshvara herself was transformed. She took what was born of her tears and she used that compassion to save the suffering. And you see an image of her there. And as she did this, she grew. She grew new faces so that she could see things more clearly. And in this cycle of tears and compassion and grief and care, she eventually grew the 11 faces that you see that allowed her to see everything. This bodhisattva not only transformed herself through her tears, but she actually changed the whole world. And I won't assume to know your culture, but if you come from mine, especially, not exclusively, but especially if you were raised to be a man, you are not culturally acclimated to the transformative and healing power of your own tears. In fact, you were likely conditioned over the years to keep it together, to hold it in, to walk away from your own pain. Bell Hooks said, patriarchy demands of all males that they engage in acts of psychic self-mutilation, that they kill off the emotional parts of themselves, which means, by the way, that this practice is a violent act of self-harm. This practice is a violent act of self-harm. And what happens instead, especially if you were raised to be a man, you are conditioned to convert your sadness into anger. And in turn, that anger has to go somewhere. It gets inflicted on someone else, or you inflict it on yourself, or both, and this is the birthplace of abuse. And if any of that sounds familiar, I am so sorry. 
Because, let me tell you something, all of that thinking, the sequestered tears, the unpreparedness for crisis, the emerging anger, the hidden softness, that pattern is death. It will kill you. Your stoicism will make you sick. Research proves it. And when you're honest with yourself, you've seen or felt it too. But there is good news, of course. You can choose to learn more about the tears that you stave off. And most importantly, know that relief is within reach. How? Reverend Perry is worth quoting here. Crying is a conduit that tethers one soul to another. It circumvents our intellectual processing of somebody else's pain. There's nothing more intimate than sobbing alone, except when our tears land on someone else's shoulder. And when they fall in concert with others' tears, we exp exponentially magnify their tears have redemptive power, even revolutionary power. And resisting, oh, good Lord, what, why is everything just off this morning? <laughs> oh, I'll just acknowledge it. But anyway, resisting your tears is unbiblical. Our text today is about resurrection. And remember, as I've preached before, that it was only through her tears that Mary Magdalene was able to behold the resurrected, the risen Christ. Resurrection is linked to death through our tears, through people's real and valuable tears. Your tears give you the clarity of this blessing, the new life God has in store for you. And to paraphrase Reverend Perry, your tears strip away the illusions you construct. Your tears allow you to know yourself and me more deeply. So you cry, and you know yourself, and you see yourself more clearly. Now what? I'm going to borrow a metaphor that I've heard from a number of other people. So turn with me to the world of photography, which I'm not any good at. So don't ask me questions about this, but I'm going to give you, you know, a basic understanding. Do you recognize what you see on the screen? It's a graphic representation of the inside of a camera's lens. And what you see represented here is aperture. The technology of photography employs the lens of the camera using very similar technology to what we have in our own eyes. Our pupils widen or narrow through what is called pupillary aperture. It's your nerd moment for today. And whether we're talking about the aperture of a camera or the aperture of our eyes, all of this is about the manipulation of, in a camera, or the response to, with our eyes, light. Our pupils have the job of regulating the amount of light that can enter our eyes. And if there's tons of light, the pupil will constrict to protect the rest of the eye. And a dilated pupil gives us night vision. It widens so that we can let more light in. You see where I'm headed with this? Now in photography, the width of the aperture has a lot to do with the perspective of the image in front of you. To put it overly simplistically, a narrower aperture gives you a more focused image with a blurrier background. 
like, as you may know, in my favorite mode on the iPhone, portrait mode, uh, that gives you that beautiful contrast. But as you widen the aperture, you get a more widened perspective of focus. You got that? Does it make sense? So what does this have to do with God or with this text? You're going to want to know that, and I think that's an excellent question. And here's my contention. Clarity of vision can be a blessing, but it might not be enough. There are times when a narrow focus is indeed helpful, but if we only keep a narrow focus, way too much crucial background is blurred. And when that happens in our faith, that's when people start getting hurt. And I mean that literally. Too narrow of a focus for too long makes us see only what we want to see, what we put in front of ourselves. But if you widen the aperture, there's much, much more to see. In the Gospels, especially in Matthew, the Sadducees are a foil for narrowly focused religious zealots. They happen to drive Jesus bonkers. He can't stand them. He can't stand their tunnel vision. And now, for context, widening the lens, if you will, the Sadducees are known not to believe in the resurrection of the dead, which was a Jewish concept well before Jesus came along. So the narrowly focused foils roll up to Jesus, trying to sun him, and everybody knew that they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they posed a hypothetical that they thought would make the afterlife and Jesus himself look dumb, which, by the way, will always be a mistake. Bless their hearts. So their hypothetical is about this woman who was widowed seven times over, and then she died. And if they're all in heaven, they wanted to know whose she would be. And I quote, for they all had her. To a person with tunnel vision, this is an interesting question, maybe even a conundrum. But if you widen the aperture, you'll see that these folks were missing the entire point, which, of course, Jesus saw right away. With tunnel vision, all they could see was a matter of possession. Does number one, number two, number seven, who gets to have this woman? That's what they wanted to know. And Jesus sees this cringy perspective, and he's just like, ew, gross. What is wrong with you all? What is wrong with you who take something so beautiful as the resurrection to eternal life and turn it into an issue of ownership? What is wrong with you who take something as beautiful as the creation of human life and turn it into a tale of fixed gender or sexuality? Who's, what's wrong with you who take the beautiful biblical metaphor darkness and light and turn that into biblical justification of false supremacy? And if white is right and the rest of us are as if white is right and the rest of us are fundamentally wrong. What's wrong with you who take the healing power of my word, Jesus asks, and corrupt it into a weapon? To the tunnel vision people, Jesus says, and I quote, you're all wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And do you catch that? 
An overly simplistic, slim-focused reading of scriptures is all wrong, and it reveals neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And if your reading of scripture will cause you or someone else harm, then God has no part in it. You hear me? While so narrowly focused on trying to embarrass Jesus, they missed the great tragedy of the text. This woman, this person was widowed seven times. Can you even imagine? That's enormous grief and loss in this text. And this is how we're gonna get back to my earlier point. Because with their tiny focus, they blurred out her pain. They've ignored her tears. But know this, just because religious folk do this a lot, all the time, to murderous effect, you need to know that Jesus doesn't. And the folk trying to put you or anyone else in shackles and chains, they know not the power of God. The folks who try to erase parts of you so that they mold you into their own image instead of God's, they know not the power of God. And when you have to contort yourself and put your head down and expend all your energy to look like and try to be what someone else expects and needs you to be rather than who you actually are, you know not the power of the God who knows the real you. And when you claim God, but know not God's power, your vision of power becomes distorted. And your power will always become weaponized, starting with yourself. And weapons are the tools of death. But Jesus said, God is God of the living, not of the dead. God is a God of life, not of death. God is a God of redemption, not of punishment. Our God is a God who creates and sustains and heals and corrects and loves and embraces and forgives. And just yesterday, I had the chance to hear an incredible conversation between Reverend Perry and a woman named Melba Marquez Green. And they were talking about her deep grief after her sweet six-year-old child was killed in, um, oh goodness, what, what is that town in Connecticut? Where, where, hmm? What is it? Yeah, exactly, Sandy Hook. And what she asked all of us to pay attention to as we work with people through grief, is just, she said, could you just let us be? Don't try to fix us. Don't try to tell us how to respond or that, you know, God has taken your child or that this was, you know, your purpose in life to now help others or any of that. What she said is just let us be. Let us exist. Let us live. Let us live in our pain and then let God heal us because those words don't heal. And remember that, she said, remember that our God is a God who cries who wept over Jerusalem. And if God can do it, there's your permission to do the same because our God's never gonna put you in chains. Our God is the breaker of chains and that's what God's power looks like. That's the power of heaven. 
Last week, you heard me talk about the simmering grief that is rampant in our community right now. It's real and it's present, and God sees that grief, your grief, and God knows what you're going through intimately. But one of the things that our grief does is it closes the aperture. When you're deeply grieving, your aperture is pretty closed and not very much light can make its way in. But by the grace of God, little by little, you can acknowledge the pain and then you let the light come in. There's a gorgeous essay in this week's Washington Post by a writer who has a terminal diagnosis, and here's his way of letting the light in. He says, I'm living each day with as much life as I can put into it. For me, that means going to bed each night, planning out at least one project for the next day, something worth getting out of bed and living for. And as I think of dying, he says, I make each day a time for living for having something to live for. And I will close by saying this, beloved, live for something. Let the light in, that's how you do it. You and whoever you grieve are all citizens of heaven. The place where grief and dying and pain are no more. Let the light in and you're gonna get your glimpse of the life that is to come. And bask then in your birthright, my love. Behold.